We all have dreams and plans, but there's a tension we live with, the impulse to live for today or the need to invest for a secured and successful future. Let me illustrate this. How many of you are angry that your parents taught you the alphabets growing up instead of letting you play more? How many of you are upset that instead of watching television, you were forced to read a book? How many of you are still seething that instead of playing video games, you were forced to learn the multiplication table? I don't think any one of us now, looking back, would blame our parents for forcing us to read, write, and learn how to do math, because that investment in learning has allowed us to successfully master these basic life skills. In my own life, if I want to be mad, I could be very upset that my mom forced me to memorize the multiplication table in both English and Hokkien Chinese when I could have been playing Super Mario Brothers or Duck Hunt on the original Nintendo gaming console. But I'm glad my mom wisely invested in my academic life through force and threat of punishment so that I can now do basic math quickly without the need for a calculator today. And yet the struggle to live for today or to invest in the future is a struggle that all Christians, young and old, wrestle with. To help us wisely decide what to do, we have to take into account our future goals. How do we define success? How do we finish well? What type of person do I want to be 10, 20, 30, or 40 years from now? You see, the decisions we make today and how we live our lives will reverberate throughout eternity. Just like in financial planning and monetary investing, there are important decisions you and I must make today to ensure that we get the best results we're looking for later on in life, especially when we retire. I would like to present three spiritual investment decisions we must make so that we will succeed in this life, a life that is celebrated as approved by God. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 20, as we study verses 1 to 16. Acts chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. Now, as you're turning to this passage, by way of context and background, this is the Apostle Paul's third missionary journey. He had spent considerable time in Ephesus, established a church there, and would now be leaving Ephesus for the rest of his planned trip. In these verses, from how the Apostle Paul interacted with the people and what he does, we can learn three spiritual investment decisions we have to make that will help us spiritually succeed in life. We pick up the story in verses 1 to 6 of Acts chapter 20. After the uproar ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now, when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. These men, going ahead, waited for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. The Bible tells us that after his time in Ephesus in Asia Minor, Paul headed to the regions of Macedonia and Greece. Notice what he did. He encouraged the people in the churches he started and spent time with them, presumably to disciple and spur them on in the Christian faith. 
during this three-month period, Paul wrote the book of Romans from the city of Corinth and was entrusted with money that the churches in this region wanted to give those in need in the church in Jerusalem. When it was time for Paul to return back home, he came to know about a plot to kill him on board a ship heading home and presumably dispose of his body at sea. So he instead returned by land through Macedonia. Paul wasn't journeying back alone. Verse 5 describes seven people who traveled with him, three from Macedonia and four from Asia Minor. These are men whom the Apostle Paul must have made such an impact in their lives that they were willing to journey with him, even with a death plot hanging over him and having to also protect the collection of money for the Jerusalem church. These were indeed wonderful, trusted traveling companions. This shows us that throughout life, there will be people, young and old, who will be willing to journey with us and follow us, but we must somehow make an impact in their lives. Or there are people who we may want to journey with through life or to follow, but they must be people who will add value to our lives. This was Paul to the seven. You see, at the end of the day, you and I have to decide who we will spend time with, Who are the people that we will pour our lives into and invest in with the limited time we have? And this is the first decision we have to make that will help us spiritually succeed in life. Spiritual investment decision number one. Who will you invest your time with? Who will you invest your time with? Are we going to spend our lives with people who are shallow and superficial and we put all of our time and effort trying to impress them and get their approval? Are we going to spend our lives with people who are critical about everything or who do not have a purpose or aim in life or are always so negative about their life outlook? Or will we spend time with quality people who are not only worth spending time with, but who can help carry you through difficult times, encourage you when you're down? challenge you in your spiritual life, and someone you can fulfill the Great Commission with. You see, peer pressure and peer influence is very real, and the people who you invest your time with will either negatively or positively impact you, even if you don't notice it at first. For example, what do you think is more likely to happen when a lazy person joins a highly productive team? Option A, The lazy person gets inspired by the productive people and their positive mindset. The lazy person automatically gets elevated to their level. Option B, the productive people in the team become lazy over time. It can't be scenario B, right? That's not how it works. The lazy person is by himself. There's no way he can influence the whole group. When the lazy person is surrounded by productive people, he'll be inspired to do more work as well. That's what most people think will happen. But in my experience and from what I've learned from others, the opposite happens. Benjamin Franklin wrote this way back in the 18th century. The rotten apple spoils his companion. So what happens when you allow a single rotten apple in your group? The group falls apart. As Darius Farrell recounts, one of my friends, who's the CEO of a mid-sized company, recently told me about making the mistake to hire a negative person. 
His sales team performed great and posted double-digit growth five years straight, and he wanted to expand. The guy he hired had a great resume and performed well during the interview process. Within the first six months, he even made several sales. But after that, he started slacking off, gossiping, and acting negatively towards leadership. And gradually, the other sales executive started doing the same. These were people who performed well before. Over an 18-month period, sales of almost all team members declined. When I talked to my friend recently, he finally had to fire the negative person, but it was already too late. He had to rebuild the team from scratch. He said that in hindsight, he should have done something earlier and had gotten rid of the negative person much quicker. Because our time is limited and we can only have a few good and close friends, make sure you wisely choose the people whom you will invest your life with. Proverbs 27 verse 9 reminds us, Ointment and perfume delight the heart, and the sweetness of a man's friend gives delight by hearty counsel. My friends, invest your time with someone who does something better than you, which you wish you were better at. This way, you can learn from them. Have them as your mentor in that area of need or concern so that you can level up. Invest in the life of someone whom you are comfortable enough to pray with. I wonder how many barcadas or young people pray together. If you guys are such great friends and can talk about anything under the sun, how many of you have ever prayed together about life's needs? Perhaps you can look for someone who will call you out if you're wrong and unafraid to do so. Don't surround yourself with people who will always agree with you or someone who will always compliment you and say things you want to hear. The Bible reminds us to avoid these types of people and to surround yourself with people who will be brutally honest with you. Look for someone who is great at setting boundaries. They respect your boundaries and you respect theirs. They are not emotional leeches that take all of your time and energy. This will lead to a balanced friendship. Invest your time with someone who will encourage you in your spiritual walk. Someone who will ask if you're being a good child, a good student, a good husband, a good wife, a good Christ follower. Someone who will ask you if you've done your daily quiet time with the Lord or if you have an intimate prayer life with the Lord. Does the person lead you to Christ or away from Christ when you're with them? Now, there are other things you need to look for in a close friend, but make sure you choose wisely whom you will invest your time with as it will affect the trajectory of your life. Several years ago, I visited the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, where Martin Luther nailed the historic 95 Theses to the church door. Inside the church, I was surprised to find two burial plots in the church floor located between the front pew and the altar. One tombstone was Luther's. The other grave was for Philip Melanchthon. Everyone knows Martin Luther, he was one of the heroes of the Protestant Reformation. Luther was a fiery preacher and scholar who inspired a national revolt against the abuses of the Catholic Church. But who was this other man? Melanchthon had the honor of being buried next to Luther. Melanchthon was also a powerful force of the Reformation, but he generally served behind the scenes. 
Melanchthon was a frail, short man, and he stuttered when he spoke, and yet he was Luther's closest friend. He provided tremendous scholarship and assistance for Luther's New Testament translation. When Martin Luther died, Melanchthon delivered the funeral message. A few years later, the soft-spoken scholar was buried beside the famous hero of the Reformation, a hero himself for his contributions. Both men invested life into each other. Both men were so different. Both needed the other to complement their own deficiencies. But more importantly, to encourage one another spiritually during the most difficult times of the Reformation movement to press on and to persevere. My friends, we finish well and succeed in life when we surround ourselves with spiritual men and women who will challenge, rebuke, and encourage us. I read now verses 7 and 8. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. The Bible tells us that Paul and his delegation all gathered at Troas, a port city in Asia Minor, where he had received his Macedonian call on his second missionary journey. It was Sunday, and Paul was leaving the next day back home. The believers in Troas came together, and they worshiped the Lord and learned God's Word together. Their preacher-teacher was the Apostle Paul. Now, we don't know what time Paul started teaching, but assuming they broke bread together during lunchtime, it would have been 12 hours of teaching and instruction since it was midnight and Paul was still going strong. Now, that's a long time. Imagine sitting through a 12-hour talk without slides or videos, just listening to someone speak, and yet the people stayed and were engaged because they were genuinely interested in hearing and were hungry to learn from God's Word. In fact, verse 8 tells us they were prepared for the length of the teaching session as they made provisions of lamps with enough oil to light the upper room when it got dark so they could listen and learn from the Apostle Paul. Their desire to learn was evidenced by their preparation. This wasn't a half-baked, last-minute planned gathering since Paul was leaving the next day sort of event. This was a let's get the most out of it with the little time that we have with the Apostle Paul event. Their preparation and staying until midnight showed their commitment. Now look what happens in verses 9 to 12. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. And they brought the young men in alive, and they were not a little comforted. The Bible tells us in this gathering, there was a young man named Eutychus who was getting tired as it was late in the evening. Now, I don't think he was bored with Paul's teaching. He made the effort to be there all the way until midnight. He probably even moved to the window to try to keep awake with a cooler breeze. But Eutychus just fell asleep and fell out of the window on the third floor to his death. His limp body was held by Paul, and Paul announced to the crowd that he was not dead and proceeded 
to raise Eutychus to life. This was a miraculous example of the power of the living God through Paul to authenticate the message he brought. And the Bible tells us the people were comforted and assured by what had happened. Now for me, here is the emphasis of the passage to my amazement. Paul continued teaching until the next morning when the sun came out, and the people continued to listen to the teaching of God's Word. If I was there, I would have told the group, let's call it a night. Someone has just fallen asleep and fallen out of the window and died. Let's not have any more accidents. I think we've learned enough from Paul. But no, they pressed on into the next day. One cannot help but be impressed by their commitment to the Lord through the study of His Word. How many of us are so committed to learning that we beg the teacher to teach more and to extend the class by a few hours? Or we desire the pastor to preach more for another 45 minutes? I don't know about you, but when I was a student, five minutes before the bell rang, it was time for class dismissal. I was already packing my bag and ready to get out of class. And I always hated it when the teacher would ask if anyone else had any more questions and someone would raise their hands and ask a question with five minutes to go in class, extending the class. I always prayed for no more questions so that we could leave. But it was not the case here. Even after this shocking accident and even more amazing, miraculous restoration to life, the people gathered to listen to hours more of Paul's teaching of God's Word, a picture of commitment. My friends, you see in life, the second decision we have to make that will help us spiritually succeed in life is this. How deep is your commitment to God? Spiritual investment decision number two. How deep is your commitment to God? How deep is your commitment to God? At the end, it all boils down to our commitment. The people were so committed to God and the knowledge of His Word that they didn't mind sitting through hours of lecture when one of the premier teachers of the Word came through town. It's like when BTS, Blackpink, Taylor Swift, Coldplay, or Hamilton comes into town. We are so committed to the musicians and group that we are willing to pay the costly ticket prices. We're willing to leave three to four hours before the event starts. We sit through the entire event or concert, and we even hang out two to three hours after the event just for the chance to catch a glimpse of our favorite artists as they leave the arena. It would be the same for sports fans who are willing to stay up late until three or four in the morning just to watch LeBron or Anthony Davis play live because they're so committed to the L.A. Lakers. Or when you're binge-watching your favorite K-drama show, you won't mind staying up all night. You don't get sleepy, and nothing will bother you or disrupt what you're so committed to, finding out what happens on your favorite show. But when it comes to spiritual things, we have lots of excuses for not being able to get up to attend church or being able to set aside time daily to have a quiet time with the Lord and pray. We give the excuse, the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. The reality is that is just a cop-out excuse. Because if we are honest with ourselves, if we are really committed to something, if we are invested, involved, and see it of value and worth and something of importance, it doesn't matter how tired we are. 
we will find a way to do it. Think about the times when in school or at work that you were willing to pull an all-nighter to get a paper done, to study, to pass a test, or to finish a project. What is the deciding factor between having a productive all-nighter or not? It is the urgency and importance of the task at hand. If your entire academic career is at stake, or if your job is at stake, you will find the motivation to get it done, even if it entails staying up all night. In a life hack article by Kelsey Fannin on pulling successful all-nighters, she writes, Knowing how to pull a successful all-nighter is critical for everyone, from college students to new employees to entrepreneurs trying to land their first big break. Everyone needs to know how to stay up late to get the job done without crashing and burning. She gives several tips like first taking a nap, eating protein, getting fresh air, doing light exercises, making sure you get your caffeine, and staying in stimulating spaces where there are tons of light, noise, and people around to keep you alert. But to my surprise, she added, make sure your project is important. She writes, before you start your all-night work session, review the reasons you need to do it. Make sure you have an important reason, a deadline, a project you're passionate about, or a limited time to complete your work. If you're trying to accomplish a boring project by staying up all night, chances are you're going to fall asleep before the clock strikes midnight. However, if you're pumped about your project and you need to get it done tonight, you'll have better luck getting the work done. My friends, even the secular world knows the importance of commitment in our motivation to doing something. That's why I ask you again, how deep is your commitment to God? How hungry are you for God's Word? Would you take time off from work or use your vacation time to study God's Word? You know, I speak around the world in retreats and conferences, and many of those conferences don't always fall on holidays. In many situations, people have to take vacation days from work, and students have to use their holidays and even pay from their own money just to learn more of God's Word. Now, that is commitment. Would you be willing to use your vacation time in the study of God's Word? You know, there will always be reasons and excuses that cause us not to do something. But if we are committed to the cause, then we brush away those excuses and simply do it. How deep is your commitment to God? College pastor Jonathan Freeman shares this interaction he had with a student. The other day, I sat down with a college student for lunch. During the conversation, he asked some great questions about being a follower of Jesus. After hearing these questions, I then proceeded to ask him when he gave his life to Christ. He grew up in the Bible Belt, Arkansas specifically, so he had a very similar story to many of the students in our ministry. He gave his life to Christ during his student ministry days. But since giving his life to Christ, there has not been much fruit, stagnant, void of growth. I see this problem time and time again with many students who come through our ministry. The story is like a broken record and goes like this. I was saved at a young age, grew up in the church, attended every Sunday, but I haven't really grown since then. Sound familiar? For whatever reason, it seems we have boiled salvation down to a decision 
instead of casting the vision for what it truly means to be a lifelong disciple-maker for Jesus. Upon sharing the gospel with every student, I tell them this, salvation is not the finish line, it is the starting line. I want them to know that following Jesus is a lifelong decision. It's a one-time decision with lifelong implications for their life. What's missing is a deep commitment to following Jesus in discipleship. That's why we find it so hard to even practice the basic spiritual disciplines because we aren't fully committed to the Lord. And by the way, no one ever said commitment is easy. There is sacrifice involved. Jamie White shares, My son felt a special calling to join the military, specifically the U.S. Army Green Berets or Special Forces, due to their mission to liberate the oppressed. He knew this commitment would require intense physical, mental, and emotional training, but he also knew it was his calling. His commitment to his calling led him to courage, capacity, and confidence. You see, commitment is not just a choice. It is a mindset. When we commit to something, we must be intentional about our actions and thoughts. Commitment requires growth, and growth requires courage. It's important to identify what inspires us to grow and what we're being called to commit to. Remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. My friends, that is the price of commitment to following our Lord. Are you willing to pay it? To deny yourself, to take up your cross, and then to follow Christ? How deep is your commitment to the God who sent His one and only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to die for you? to give you and I salvation and eternal life. How committed are you to God? Now look with me at verses 13 to 16. Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Asos. They are intending to take Paul on board, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there, the next day came opposite Chios. The following day, we arrived at Samos and stayed at Trogilium. The next day, we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. The Bible tells us that instead of traveling by boat, Paul decided to travel the land route from Troas to Asos presumably to spend more time in Troas. And in Asos, he met his traveling group, and they sailed together to Miletus on the coast of Asia Minor. Paul intentionally sailed past Ephesus because he wanted to be at Jerusalem by Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. These verses clearly show us that the Apostle Paul put priority in certain things over other things. He would not be able to meet everyone he would have wanted to. I'm sure if there was time, Paul would have loved to return to Ephesus, where he had spent much time before and established a church there, but he prioritized being in Jerusalem by a certain date. This illustrates that in the real world, there are many worthwhile endeavors to do in any given period of time. But at the end of the day, 
One is to wisely choose how they will prioritize their own schedule. You see, in life, the third decision we have to make that will help us spiritually succeed in life is to decide what you will prioritize in your schedule. Spiritual investment decision number three, what will you prioritize in your schedule? What will you prioritize in your schedule? You know, my friends, everyone is given the same 24 hours a day to live their lives. And you determine how you will choose to fill those 24 hours. Sleeping and eating are, of course, essential. Work, studies, household chores, hobbies, social media time, time with family and friends, relaxation time also take a huge chunk of that 24-hour period. But how much of your 24 hours a day or 168 hours a week is committed to spiritual things and your walk with God? I venture to guess very little, perhaps no more than two hours a week. And yet we can easily spend more than that just in a single day scrolling through IG reels, YouTube shorts, and TikTok. The schedule of our lives is in the control of our own hands. No one can really make us do something we don't want to do. So what will you prioritize in your schedule? If you say you love God and your relationship with Jesus is the most important thing in your life, how does that translate into your daily and weekly schedule? Everyone says they're busy, but somehow, if they want to do it and they prioritize it, we surprisingly find the time in our busyness to get what we want to do done. The first step in time mastery is to look at your choices and asking, is what I'm doing important? To understand what is important, you have to identify your desired end goals. To help you see my point, let me share this often used illustration. When things in your life seem almost too much to handle, when 24 hours a day is not enough, remember the mayonnaise jar and the soda. A professor stood before his philosophy class with some items in front of him. When the class began, wordlessly, he picked up a very large and empty mayonnaise jar and proceeded to fill it up with golf balls. He then asked the students if the jar was full. They agreed that it was. So the professor then picked up a box of pebbles and poured them into the mayonnaise jar. He shook the jar lightly. The pebbles rolled into the open spaces between the golf balls. He then asked the students again if the jar was full. They agreed it was. The professor then picked up a box of sand and poured it into the jar. Of course, the sand filled up everything else. He asked once more if the jar was full. The students responded with a unanimous yes. The professor then produced two cans of soda from under the table and poured the entire contents into the jar, effectively filling the empty spaces between the sand. The students laughed. Now, said the professor after the laughter subsided, I want you to recognize that this jar represents your life. The golf balls are the important things. Your family, your children, your health, your friends, your favorite passions, things that if everything else was lost and only they remained, your life would still be full. The pebbles are the other things that matter, like your job, your house, your car. The sand is everything else, the small stuff. If you put the sand into the jar first, he continued, there is no room for the pebbles or the golf balls. The same goes for life. 
If you spend all your time and energy on the small stuff, you will never have room for the things that are important to you. Pay attention to the things that are critical to your happiness. Play with your children. Take time to get medical checkups. Take your spouse out to dinner. Talk to a friend. There will always be time to clean the house and fix the disposal. Take care of the golf balls first, the things that really matter. Set your priorities. The rest is just sand. One of the students raised her hand and inquired what the soda represented. The professor smiled. I'm glad you asked. It just goes to show you that no matter how full your life may be, there's always room for a couple of sodas. Now get into action and work on identifying the golf balls and pebbles in your life. The point is if you never prioritize the things of God and a relationship with Jesus, you will simply never have time for Him, however earnest and sincere you may be. My friends, if you can't spend 10 minutes a day reading God's Word or 10 minutes a day in prayer, it doesn't matter how much you claim you love Jesus and put Him first in your life. He doesn't have priority. Let me end with this story. One day, a teacher asked her students to list the names of the other students in the room on two sheets of paper, leaving a space between each name. Then she told them to think of the nicest thing they could say about each of their classmates and write it down. It took the remainder of the class period to finish their assignment, and as the students left the room, each one handed in the papers. That Saturday, the teacher wrote down the name of each student on a separate sheet of paper and listed what everyone else had said about that individual. On Monday, she gave each student his or her list. Before long, the entire class was smiling. Really? She heard whispered. I never knew that I meant anything to anyone, and I didn't know others liked me so much were most of the comments. No one ever mentioned those papers in class again. She never knew if they discussed them after class or with their parents, but it didn't matter. The exercise had accomplished its purpose. The students were happy with themselves and one another. That group of students moved on. Several years later, one of the students was killed in Vietnam, and his teacher attended the funeral of that special student. The church was packed with his friends. One by one, those who loved him took a last walk by the coffin. The teacher was the last to do so. As she stood there, one of the soldiers who acted as pallbearer came up to her. Were you Mark's math teacher? He asked. She nodded, yes. Then he said, Mark talked about you a lot. After the funeral, most of Mark's former classmates went together to a luncheon. Mark's mother and father were there, obviously waiting to speak with his teacher. We want to show you something, his father said, taking a wallet out of his pocket. They found this on Mark when he was killed. We thought you might recognize it. Opening the billfold, he carefully removed two worn pieces of notebook paper that had obviously been taped, folded, and refolded many times. The teacher knew without looking that the papers were the ones on which she had listed all the good things each of Mark's classmates had said about him. Thank you so much for doing that, Mark's mother said. As you can see, Mark treasured it. All of Mark's former classmates started to gather around. Charlie smiled rather sheepishly and said, I still have my list. 
It's in the top drawer of my desk at home. Chuck's wife said, Chuck asked me to put his in his wedding album. I have mine too, Marilyn said. It's in my diary. Then Vicky, another classmate, reached into her pocketbook, took out her wallet, and showed her worn and frazzled list of the group. I carry this with me at all times, Vicky said. And without batting an eyelash, she continued, I think we all saved our lists. That's when the teacher finally sat down and cried. She cried for Mark and for all of his friends who would never see him again. But she was glad for the investment of time she put in years ago, this simple activity she had the students do, for she could not believe the rewards it had yielded throughout the years for so many. My friends, one day, every one of us will have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of our lives. How will we report our lives to our Savior? What spiritual investments are we making now that will reap abundant blessings and rewards later? Remember, it is worth your while to decide who will you invest your time with. How deep is your commitment to God? What will you prioritize in your schedule? If you can answer these questions honestly, rightly, and biblically, you will do well in life and spiritually succeed. May God bless each one of you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this wake-up call. We live in this tension where we want to live in the present, and yet we forget that we need to invest in the future. Father, I pray that each one of us will look at our own spiritual life and honestly assess it. Who are the friends we are spending time with? How deep is our commitment with you? And what are the things we prioritize in our schedule? As followers of Jesus Christ, as those who have placed their trust in Jesus, I pray that honestly in our lives, you would be number one. You would be the first in our mind. And the things we do in this life will always prioritize you and living a life that is in intimate fellowship with you. Bless each person who has heard this message. May you challenge them in their spiritual life so that they will succeed well in life and finish well. For your glory's sake, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.